If you're a team leader or organizational leader, so much falls on your shoulders, from the vision to the message to operations to putting out the fires. But it's very difficult to grow that way, at least without driving yourself and others crazy. So let's talk to an expert therapist who counsels business executives and is also the owner of a fast-growing business himself. It's Ken Clark on the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. Here, each week, we discuss three foundational components for growing your business. First, your message, meaning the words, stories, and evidence you want to share. Second, your messengers, the network of people who can help you share that message. And third, management habits that will shape your culture and turn your improvements into an everyday business advantage. We know it's much easier to grow your business when you are a message manager. At the outset of these podcast episodes, sometimes I like to let you in on why I ask a particular guest to speak with us. I met Ken Clark in a Vistage peer advisory group several years ago. In that setting, there's a small group of business owners and senior managers who get together each month to talk in a confidential way about business and often about life issues. The sessions are led by a chair who is a professional facilitator and coach. The members of a group share a lot. They tend to become quite close over time. In my group, Ken Clark was often the member to whom others would look for guidance and the last word. It made sense. After all, he's a therapist. Ken is an expert in working with high-conflict couples, business owners, and sales professionals. He specializes in work around borderline personality disorder, but he comes from a family of business executives. He worked for years as a financial planner has written six books on personal finance, and has been regularly quoted in media outlets such as Money Magazine and CNN.com. But Ken decided to make a switch and become a therapist. He started Chanel Family Therapy in Central Arkansas more than a decade ago and has become a successful mental health entrepreneur. The business has continued rapid growth and was even named an Arkansas Business of the Year. So he can speak to big topics like mental health for business professionals, how to grow and scale a business, how to get out of your own way, and that elusive work-life balance, if there is such a thing, will ask the expert. And Ken always approaches these issues with kindness and humor. Ken Clark, welcome to our message, Manage Your Message podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Jim. It's an honor to be on, on the show with you. And I think the admiration is, is mutual. I've learned so much from you over the years. Well, let's let's share some of that with uh, with our listeners, and and you are you are quite kind. I'd like to begin with the overall perception of therapy, and as background, you began in California, and it seems like California, you know, having a therapist is not only rather expected, but you know, kind of a badge of honor, right? All the all the cool people have a therapist. Then you come to Arkansas, in part, as I recall, because of the relative scarcity of therapists. 
And so here in Arkansas, where our show arises, having a therapist might be seen more as a sign of weakness than as a sign of, of being cool. So as you've worked to, to grow your business, have you had to get around this perception about therapy itself? Yeah, what we've discovered here is, is that we're essentially having to train the public how to use therapy and how to perceive of therapy, which presents challenges, but opportunities, right? We Going to the point of shaping the message, we, we get to teach people from the ground up what therapy is supposed to be. And in a lot of ways, we have been more productive as therapists than in California, where everybody, not only do they have a therapist, they could probably be a therapist they've been in some therapy. <laughs> so, you know, here, people are very open, a kind of blank place. And, and so we've had to destigmatize, you know, through teaching people that, that this is nothing more than a consulting relationship with a nice couch. You know, this is not a sign of failure. This is a sign of, of strength that you're seeking out consultation about your life. But at the same time, it's presented a huge opportunity because uh, the people that have done it for the first time love it. And just like discovering a new restaurant or a new brand or something, they, they tell their friends the word of mouth, the, the exponential growth of our business has been much more than anything I experienced in California. Interesting. When you uh, talk about professionals here, and uh, I mentioned earlier this this phrase that gets bandied about of work-life balance, and I, I hear from people who I think try to partition the work self from their their other selves. I heard you at one point, Ken. I think you were you were talking about when you work with a lot of people that you'll typically see they handle some part of their lives really well, and then struggle with others, and I think. You also have said, though, that a lot of the skills that will work in one part of our life are pretty transferable to others, that you really can leverage some strengths there. Is that, is that a fair interpretation? And, and how, can, how do you help clients take the strengths from one part of their lives and break down those walls? Yeah, not only is it those things that you said are accurate, right, but that that people try and compartmentalize it, and ironically, they shouldn't because they have really transferable skills. It's, in fact, been part of how we destigmatize mental health, right? You know, when somebody comes into our office and, and you present yourself as, or you present to them that, that, gosh, you're a nitwit because you never learned how to do X, Y, or Z, they're naturally going to be more defensive about hearing uh, what you have to share. When we look at somebody and say, good grief, you're a phenomenal sales guy or saleswoman, um, and do you realize that getting your kids to clean their room is nothing more than a sales job, right? And if we could just transfer those skills, then it's a huge opportunity both for them to kind of leapfrog change in their life as well as not hear it as a correction of them, but just as a, a, a reapplication or reframing of, of current skills. And so we do a lot of that where we help them see it. Now, the interesting piece where it becomes really therapeutic is, is after the initial round of change, we get to have discussions about why uh, are you able to, to lead a company culture with such fearlessness and, and vulnerability and openness, and yet, uh, you know, co-leading your family culture, um, you're terrified and, and you don't want to hear what your 16-year-old thinks of you. So we, we get to then use that, that early success of simply transferring skills into, we parlay it into a much deeper conversation of, 
And so why was it so hard to transfer this skill? Uh, turns out you might have some issues from your own upbringing that get in the way. And, and so it's, it's, uh, it's a neat opportunity that segues into a neat opportunity, you know. Do you see sometimes a compounding effect? So I just think, you know, kind of naively, a lot of people in business, we see ourselves as problem solvers, you know, strategic thinkers. And then if they're able to, to some way break through, solve a different kind of problem, then, then maybe there's more, I uh, feel like more confidence and capacity to then let's find something else and something else. Yeah, for sure. You know, that, that um, especially with uh, men in particular, you know, we kind of joke, it's not that men don't experience emotions. They, they just tend to experience two emotions, anger and apathy. <laughs> you know, I get really mad and uh, I'm over it. Now, once men in particular um, start picking up with this nuanced emotional vocabulary, once they learn to, to kind of, you know, squint and see the different colors in, in uh, the emotional rainbow, they get very excited to apply this stuff to other aspects of their life. And in, in other words, success breeds success. Success gives you courage. And, and so part of being a good therapist is, is teeing up some early successes, uh, just like you would as a business person. If I'm going to send out a new sales guy, I, I might send them to somebody who I know is a pretty easy yes, so that they kind of pick up some courage as opposed to the to the client that I haven't even been able to get to say yes. You know, um, So we do see it build momentum. And we see even families that feed off each other in that way, that somebody who uh, a mom or a dad who starts interacting with uh, the oldest child differently, the youngest child begins watching that, copying some of that behavior, and we get a synergy of one plus one equals three. Likewise, we, we see people who come in because they do family really well, but work is giving them trouble. And, you know, they're all heart when it comes to family, but they're all business when it comes to business. And as it turns out, their employees need to see a little bit of heart out of them. They need to see a little bit of emotion. You know, the, the, the dad who cries when the kid makes the winning shot, you know, um, that person needs to cry when their when their salesperson, you know, uh, brings in the big sale, not just, I knew you could do it, you know, and they, so the skills actually transfer both ways. Um, so that's exciting to help people see those opportunities. It's interesting, uh, Ken, we had a, a guest on the podcast a few episodes ago, a former CNN anchor, a journalist named Frank Sesno, and he wrote a book called Ask More. And it was really about the power of questions and uh, using those strategically. And he he's of the opinion from his experience, um, and a lot of it applied to business, that people don't ask nearly enough questions. They don't ask the right kinds of questions, don't engage people as well as they could, and they don't listen very well. Uh, is that, I'm not leading the witness here too much. I don't think so. But are do you see that asking questions listening in, in certain ways, is that a, an empathetic skill or a confidence that you work with uh, executives a lot? Mm, yeah, for sure. You know, and, and it, it, that even reflects on our, our shared time and vistage. You know, a big part of that is um, you got all these smart people in a the room. They all want to solve the problem real quick. when You're listening to your, your peers' problems. And one of the real stretching exercises of, of that vistage experience was to, as, as our mentor used to say, right, remain in the question as long as possible. You know, Einstein talked about, uh, I'm going to butcher the quote a little bit, but he said, you know, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and, and five minutes solving it. And, and so I think it, 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 uh, what we do know is that, and I've seen from experience, is when people stay in the question 
instead of moving to solutions, as long as possible, they come up with better solutions at the end. Why we don't do that, you know, is, is a variety of things like impulsiveness and insecurity and, and um, a need to prove ourselves and have a good answer and, and just the embarrassment that comes from not knowing. Uh, and so leaders who get comfortable with the ramifications of, of not being an expert on the spot with everything end up being better leaders because then they get naturally curious. And, and the way we would frame a gym is the, the best leaders, the only thing they're going to be an expert at is not being an expert that they're going to be an expert at asking questions and remaining curious and finding other people smarter than them. So great leaders are experts at not being experts. That's how they, they get the data they need and, and shift paradigms and see things differently. As a, a bit of a follow-up to that, Ken, ask you about silence. Now, I won't use a lot of silence here because it's not great in, in podcasts, I don't think, in an audio medium. But... Uh, You've also mentioned, I think I heard you talk at one point about how therapists in particular um, have training in how to use silence, you know, especially what in, in everyday conversation would be considered maybe awkward silence, but as a way to do that very strategically. So we've talked about the power of questions and curiosity. What is, as a therapist, are there areas that you think people in business could learn about kind of being quiet and using silence sometimes. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the silence has got a twofold value. One, very dynamic leaders, charismatic leaders will fill up the space and, and people will, um, out of admiration or deference, keep their mouth shut. Why would somebody speak up when Ken, the guy who's built this huge business, is talking? I mean, surely I can't know as much as Ken. So if Ken's talking, other people are not going to. They're not going to interrupt. Uh, they're going to defer. So, number one, silence is necessary to evoke answers from from the people that you trust and that you put in in other leadership positions. But likewise, if, if I'm deliberately silent, then I'm also, by extension, not thinking about the thing that I'm going to say next. Right? That that most of us are are waiting for the other person's lips to stop moving to to give our opinion. And when I've decided I'm not going to give an opinion. Then I don't need to form an opinion, which means I'm then freed up to listen to the opinions being shared by other people. And so that, that preparation and decision to remain silent is important for me as a leader. Uh, it's a key element in openness because otherwise I'm not open. I'm planning what I'm going to say when you stop talking. Make sense? It does. And the whole notion about, um, or the whole skill set around conversation and listening and of that and I'd like to add, and I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but you've got a perspective both as a therapist, but also as a business owner, and having a lot of other therapists, other staff members, and colleagues of of varying age. And as as we go along in this life, can I, I notice that you know a lot of the people that I'm working around get younger all the time, and so we we hear a lot, and there's a lot of evidence about real communication differences and uh, different preferences from generation to generation, particularly when it comes to face-to-face communication. Are, are you seeing this a lot in both your own business and in counseling people in other businesses? Uh, are, there, are there real challenges there? Are there real differences there? You know, I don't think there is as much as people think. I, you know, one of my resolutions that is a, a little bit of rocket fuel for my business is, is I've decided that millennials are not what 
what the media tells me. Millennials are. Um, millennials in particular are so maligned in the media uh, that, that I think by the time managers and leaders even think about leading millennials, they're thinking about how to manage what their cliche of millennials has become, right? That they're selfish or short-sighted or whatever. And, and when I've already decided who somebody is, I'm not going to be a very good listener to them. And and I employ a lot of millennials, um, a lot of whom are are by their own choice workhorses They've and, and six-figure earners and all these things that people tell me that millennials are not. And they're, some of the best ideas in our company come from, from millennials. But it, it, it has to do with deciding that I don't actually know what they're going to communicate or how they're going to communicate it, that I, I avoid the cliches that have been handed to me by, by media and management, things like that. And, and by the way, because I'm that guy, I think most of the millennials that I lead would tell you that I stick out in their memory of, of leaders because I actually listen. And that's simply because I haven't decided who they are before they tell me. And so that, that's a, a big piece of this is, you know, as, as a leader of a diverse population, men, women, young, old, gay, straight, you know, the whole spectrum, different ethnicities. If I have a strategy in advance for dealing with people based on, on some classification in my mind, a communication strategy based on some identifiable fact, then my bias is creeping in and I'm not a listener. I'm a predictor, right? And, and a predictor doesn't hear things they can use. They only tend to hear things that prove what they know. And so that's been a big decision for me is, is that communication strategies around certain demographics are actually very dangerous and limiting. And so I, I've worked very hard to, to not know anything about anybody before they open their mouth. Well, you come at this from a lot of experience and some very specific professional training. And a lot of that is, is not, you know, not jumping into uh, a prescription before you do some good diagnosis. But as you were just talking about, because none of us are free from bias, no matter how hard we try. So Ken, do you have some sort of checklist or some sort of touchstone that you return to, to try to be more of a listener and interpreter rather than a predictor, especially given the the nature of the, the work colleagues that you have and the people you serve? How do you dial back or attenuate the, the natural impulse to try to put people in categories or, or jump too far ahead? Well, you know, my, my biggest secret is probably other people, you know, great, great leaders surround themselves with, with other great leaders probably. And, and I've been very deliberate about trying to find a, a lot of different people from different backgrounds that are basically my peers in running this company. And I count on them and I invite them and, and I've asked them to allow me to do the same, but, but to make it clear where my bias is, is creeping in to the discussion. And, and by the way, that, that's very scary to call out your boss and say, hey, I think you're being a straight white male right now, or I think you're being a, 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 an ex-gender and, and you know, relegating millennials to you know, some, some cliche. So what I rely on the most, my tool, is, is creating an environment where my leaders who are diverse from me are not just permitted but rewarded for taking me to task. And part of that commitment is I will never give you a response to what you point out in the moment, which is not so much for them, but it's for me because in the moment I want to defend myself. 
after I get some windshield time on the way home, turns out that they actually have a good point. So me limiting my response to critique about my biases is super important in me being able to accept what I hear. And how about the role of, as you're meeting, because so much of this has to happen, I would imagine, face-to-face in real time, that so much gets messed up and misconstrued uh, that we make attribution errors, that we uh, you know impugn people's motivations, especially when it's it's social media or it's email or something along those lines. It, I'm imagining that this whole scenario that you're talking about, this is not going to be on a conference call, right? This is going to be where people are together and and you can have the full spectrum of of response and and questions. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I would I would add to that and say. You know, as a therapist, right, if the only time you come to marriage therapy is when you're in deep trouble, you know, that that taints the, the relationship of the therapist to speak into the life of these two people, right? If the only time you go to the dentist is when you can't stand the pain anymore, uh, then you're not going to like the dentist very much. You're going to associate him with, uh, it, it hurts less to let you drill on me than to let you not. And so I'm a big believer that, that even face-to-face meetings, that the only reason they occur is is project related or crisis related then we have a situation where where people's communication and connection is is more situational than longitudinal through their life and and so i'm a huge believer that corporate cultures and families and and friends that do not play together as well as work or live together are missing a major opportunity to speak into each other's lives and have context where things come up. Some of the best conversations I've had with Vistage peers or uh, people that work in my company is when we're stuck in traffic together. We're late for a meeting. We have nowhere to be. And we're just kind of wandering conversationally. You're playing music for each other. And, and then the real stuff comes out. And, and so that that's a really important aspect to me of cultural communication is it can't simply be crisis related. There has to be life together, doing life together, playing together for that to occur. And to that extent, like our company, we made it a value starting last year that we do a quarterly to trimesterly trip that is optional, that anybody can go on if they want. We, we take it out of your paycheck over, over a couple months, but we just go hang out together. Bring your family. Don't bring your family. So we've done St. Louis. We've done college football. We've, and we're about to go to Birmingham together as a staff. Just to play. It's not a conference. There's not a single business-oriented thing there, but it's a chance for us to be in the same space, knowing that people that play together communicate better. That's interesting. So it sounds like they're strategically, very intentionally, you provide the space and the environment, but not with some agenda. Like you're going to come out of this with, you know, the five things that you're going to make better about yourself or something along those lines. We, so I, and I would call that the, the tomato plant, right? And we, we talk about this too, even in marriage, intimacy and, and all that kind of stuff, that, and passion, that a tomato plant is grown in a, a pot that you put on the ground with a, a, a trellis or whatever that you, you, you put for the plant to grow up. But then in, within that defined structure, the plant does whatever it wants, right? It grows this way or that way or might have three or five tomatoes. And, and so there's this value to creating structure, creating container where the spontaneous can happen. And, and that that's that blend. And to me, that's part of work-life balance is, is can you be deliberate about creating non-deliberate space? Ken, you're, you've been dealing with a business which 
is a group of trained professional service providers, you know, certified people who have a, a certain skill. And then there's going to be a support network around that and having that be a business and trying to scale that a lot. And I think a lot of your journey, and I'm sure a lot of our message manager listeners can relate to this, is about how do you get out of your own way in the times when you need to? How do you know what to delegate and what not to? And and so I can almost imagine a lot of our listeners saying, yes, <laughs> how do I do that? So ha- have you found, you've talked about a, a principle of philosophy delegation, which I'd love for you to maybe talk a little bit about what have you have found, you know, not only as a, as a therapist and someone looking at mental and emotional health, but as someone running a business about there's only one of you as the leader. And so at some point, if you're going into areas that you shouldn't be, or if your your vessel has, has been emptied and you don't have a whole lot to give, then you know, clearly the business can't grow. So how are you approaching this issue of delegation? Well, the philosophy delegation is a, is a term that I think I came up with. Somebody else may have said it and I just forgot who, but um, it, it was in response to the idea that, that most delegation is actually task delegation. I've decided what needs to happen. I've decided that's an unproductive thing for me to execute. So I'm going to hand off to somebody else what I've decided needs to happen. And, and that that's good management, right? That, that, that helps spread the load around unless you focus on highest value activities. But there's no succession in that. There's no exponential growth. There's no thinking outside of, of Ken's paradigm of seeing the world. Um, there's no room for other people within my company to be the maverick or the renegade that I was in our market, which led to rapid growth for our company. And so philosophy delegation is where I give up not just the task execution, but even deciding what the tasks should be, what directions, organizations, and projects, and, and brand, and logo, and all that stuff should go. It doesn't mean I give it away all in once. Like, congratulations, you're now in charge of our entire social media campaign. But it might be, hey, I want more of a presence in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Go figure out what that looks like, right? As opposed to, we need seven posts a week on Instagram. You're in charge of that. And so giving people that that sandbox to play in, right? To to get in there and play with philosophy creation. What's this company going to look like? What's our brand going to look like? To give them training wheels to try that on is absolutely crucial because if not, then when Ken gets hit by a bus, then at best you're going to get somebody who's trying to copy my leadership style when they didn't know why I did what I did. And that probably leads to the second very valuable point, which is Ken is still figuring out why Ken does what he does. Uh, even the last year, we're, we're now pushing about $5 million in revenue. And, and, and three years ago, we were a million dollars, right? So we've had this, this fun growth. Uh, I told people I feel like the, the drunk college guy that somebody dared to climb up the radio tower, and, and I climbed about two thirds of the way up before I looked down and was like, "Oh my gosh, what have I done?" <laughs> well, why why did I let somebody dare me into you know climbing the radio tower? Maybe it's because I was the non-athletic kid in high school. Maybe it's because I didn't get enough hugs growing up. Whatever it is, there's a lot of things in Ken that led to the accepting of that challenge, and leaders who don't understand why they're driven the way they are, what things in their childhood, their upbringing, and their their other experiences of success and failure, how those things influence decision-making, leadership, goal-setting, 
you're you're a very blind leader. You're a reactive leader who's who's chasing something you don't know what it is. So proper philosophy delegation, which is really hard, also takes understanding why you don't want to delegate, why you need to be in charge of this thing, what you have to prove. And once you begin understanding that about you, you can do a lot better job of letting it go and letting other people succeed or fail. And that's probably the biggest gift of leadership you'll ever give is giving somebody else a chance to get in the batter's box and, and whatever consequences come, you're still proud of them. And, and that's what we work hard to do in our culture. Ken, before um, we talk a little bit more about some practical application of some of these ideas for listeners, I, I'm really curious about the nature of your type of business and and the value of kind of face-to-face versus online and mediated communication for these really deep issues. So in therapy, your company is offering some online and, and tech-assisted therapy sessions. And there's always been the tradition, of course, of the face-to-face session. So I'm really curious about where you have tried that. And some of your, your therapist colleagues have been trying that. What are you what are you learning? And is there, you think over time, is there some sort of hybrid model that develops in terms of getting, being both efficient, but also being effective? Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's not just efficient and effective. You know, one, one of our internal goals as a company is to generate, our mission statement is to generate gratitude in every interaction. And that includes with our payer sources. So, you know, the Blue Cross Blue Shield mm-hmm. of the world and, and Medicaid, Medicare. And part of the old model of therapy is that you need to see somebody for an hour. And historically, therapists have built these payers for an hour's worth of therapy over a 15-minute question, right? Somebody needs to process something. But golly, it takes 20 minutes, but we're going to go ahead and find something to talk about for an hour so we can get the whole hour built. And, and so we see even a shift there where, where technology-assisted communication, technology-assisted therapy, allows us to be more responsible partners with our insurance companies and things like that, where somebody can see us for 20 minutes to call us and we can have a quick conversation and bill for that time instead of only seeing you on our couch for an hour. So we do see a hybrid gym where a lot of the relationship and the rapport is established by sitting in a room with somebody and laughing and learning to watch body language and stuff like that. And as that relationship develops, those people become very thankful for um, both convenient and quick access through email and video and phone, where they can get a simple question answered without having to take time off from work and all that kind of stuff. So we really like that hybrid model and believe it builds better client relationships by creating a lower cost structure for simple for simple things. Further, further, one of the things we, we believe and are coming to recognize is there's people that that would be the only way they get services. You know, if you live in the middle of, you know, a rural community and, and you're a, a blue collar family, you know, driving an hour for therapy once a week is really expensive in terms of gas and things like that. And, and the ability for uh, a parent to get on something equivalent to Skype at, at nine o'clock at night and have a 30 minute conversation without spending any gas, without paying for a babysitter, man, that's a gift to those families. And, and likewise, there's people with conditions like anxiety disorders that them not having to leave their house may be the only way they can get help. So we see we see a huge growth opportunity there. But like most things, it, it's really got to be paired with the right situation. It's not a cure-all. It, it's an addition to our bag of golf clubs. You know, it's, it's a new putter 
that we can we can play with. And is it too much of a stretch to say some of the, the learnings that you have? Because your business is a network of offices, right? Spread out over a you know fairly wide geographic area. And a lot of us in business today, we're oftentimes we're on conference calls, we're in different areas, we're on people are on different work schedules. There are things there in that mix of face-to-face and, and tech-mediated communication. Any learnings uh, from, from that experience that you're developing? You know, probably the, the biggest learning is, is that that by meeting, you know, can occur face-to-face over a conference call. Probably the leader-like conference call probably only increases the probability for, for somebody to be multitasking instead of participating. So, you know, probably the temptation for us as we got larger and spread out across multiple offices and had the ability, you know, added conference call systems was, wow, we can we can do a lot of collaboration. Well, that's just as onerous, just as much of a time suck for people virtually as it is uh, physically. And, and so we've had to be really deliberate about not being too excited, too enthralled with that tool. And we still have to return to the basic questions of, you know, if it can be accomplished in an email, don't do a phone call. If it can be accomplished in a phone call, don't do a conference call. Etc. So we're, we're constantly asking ourselves the question of, even though we have this technology, how do we not let it seduce us into time wastage, which would be very easy with conference calls and things like that. So, um, And the other is, is that conference calls do allow people to be in situations where they can't give you their full attention or, or, or video or anything like that. So, you know, oh, I'll just call you from the car. Well, that's great. A, I don't want you to die in a car accident, though. B, you know, when you're in the car and, and trying to figure out where the, the soccer match is that you're taking your kid to, are you really giving the company your best? And, and so as we plan these conference calls and things, we've been strategic about what times of day, what days of the week are going to be most attentive for people. And so we very much try and focus on, you know, eight o'clock, nine o'clock in the morning or before people are, are trying to sneak out of the office early or, or things like that. And this, uh, Ken may be a, a bit of a impossible question, <laughs> but well, uh, or, or, you know, way too simple, but you know, you've, you've spoken about a lot of really important things and the, the ways that we can approach things through need and, and fear and anxiety versus trying to be kind of more proactive and, and, and unpacking some of the things that impact why we do what we do, whether they be in business or across life. But these are such big, they can, I would imagine for some people be very imposing sorts of things uh, to think about. Do you have any small practices, habits, things that you might recommend to uh, a professional who's listening to this, just kind of think about them themselves, their situation, ways to kind of dip the toe in the water. Is there anything along those lines uh, as people will maybe begin a journey toward a more kind of proactive, intentional way of looking at all these issues. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you know, one of the worst human conditions is, is alone, right? Um, and, and in isolation, the, the, the stories that we carry, the paranoia, even, even the hopes and dreams can all become so exponentially out of whack without, you know, kind of, of uh, you know, some ability to reflect off other people's journeys. Uh, we know that one of the most effective treatments for things like drug and alcohol and addiction are 12-step meetings because you get in a room where people say, hi, my name's Ken, and I'm an alcoholic. And by the way, everybody's in the same boat. That's why you're in the room. 
and and that's what Vistage was for me. That, that's what even lunch with Jim Carr is for me is an ability to go, oh, I'm not the only one that that has thought this or feels this or whatever. So, to me, the biggest step is, is to remove isolation from your world. Simplest step, but the biggest step is to remove isolation. You've got to be in vulnerable conversation with other people who are in your field, at your stage of business growth and whatever. So you realize how normal you are in your overestimation of possibilities and, and your over catastrophizing of fears. That's a big deal to, to not just be the only one you know who's doing what you do. That then leads to an ability to see yourself in other people, right? And, and we all, that's kind of one of the big things that we all loved about this was Jim Carr might be talking about the unique aspects of, of building brand playbooks and things like that. And I'm sitting there going, he's having the same issues that, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with the internal employee handbook, but it's about brand, you know. So when we get in the same space with other people, we see that, that though your world's different, it's actually the same. It allows me to, to begin expanding my vocabulary, my emotional vocabulary by seeing myself through other people's eyes. So that's the big thing is, is I don't see how you can develop your emotional awareness as a leader or a business person without being in communion with other leaders and business persons on a very emotional, raw, transparent level. Great advice. Uh, Ken Clark, you are, you are wise and, uh, and, and kind and giving. Can you uh, just uh, let our listeners know where they can learn more about you and how you work with clients and the kind of things that you're writing and thinking about? Sure. You know, our, our website for our practice is probably the best way to find me if you're ever looking for me. Uh, we're called Chanel Therapy, and, and our website is Chanel, C-H-E-N-A-L, therapy.com. Um, you can find me on there. I'm always available as a, as a therapist, as a coach, uh, as a speaker. And uh, we got some big things on the horizon as far as developing some uh, executive coaching. My uh, Kind of my number two in the company and I are working on uh, doing some uh, blogging and things like that. So that'll that'll be out in the near future. We just don't have the real estate on the Internet yet. So, uh, But Chanel Therapy is the best place to find me and, and uh, maybe Jeff Carr's podcast in the future. Absolutely. And, and Ken would love to have you back on the podcast, uh, later on. And it's just, uh, it, very interesting, um, but your perspectives and both a very competent and experienced therapist, but also as your, your point as a business leader and a, and a coach and a model for others as well. So again, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Absolutely honored, Jim. Thanks a lot. Have a great one. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcarr.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.